Paul the Persecutor. I'm kind of juiced about today's class in a morbid way. I think this is a, a wonderful class that is very sad. This is a class, I usually try and inject some humor into these classes. Um, there's not a lot of humor I can put into this one because um, the material, it really touches me. It moves me. And so I'm going to set the mood for the class by asking you a very personal question. Okay. This is uh, going to put you in the interrogation seat. Okay? Get the bright light shining down on you. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. And I want to ask you this question, but when I flash it up here, don't answer it out loud. That's an invasion of privacy. Answer it internally. And when you answer this question, I want, to, I want you to, to gauge a reaction within you. I want to, you to see, did it take me a long time to answer this question? Or did the answer come to mind? in a flash. And I'd be interested, and I don't think it's going to be an invasion of privacy. I'm going to take a poll on that question. And, and, and if you don't want to answer the poll, feel free not to, because I'm not up here to pry. But I'd be very interested in knowing. I think I can do it in a... But maybe not. Maybe then I start thinking, well, I don't know, because you start... Here's the question. You ready? Have I built up some suspense? Okay. What's the worst thing you've ever done? Don't answer out loud. How many of you are able to answer that just almost automatically? A bunch of us. Yeah. But then maybe some of you, you start thinking, well, I don't know, I did that, and that was pretty bad. And then there was that. Hmm. Well, this morning, what we get to do is we get to put Paul in the interrogation chair. He didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> I found humor in the class after all. So we'll just have the upper part of his torso as we examine him. Paul in the examination chair, the interrogation chair. And, and Paul was... If Paul were being examined today, if Constable Hickman had Paul under the glaring lights of Precinct 4, the question might be, was Paul a religious terrorist? That's our today language. That's not the language Paul would have used. But I want to examine Paul, and I want to examine some of the worst things that Paul ever did. Paul who called himself the worst of sinners. I want to examine this and I want your help doing it. Now, who knows how to examine a crime? We all do. Because we watch TV. This is, dun dun dun, CSI Jerusalem. So what we need to do as CSI Jerusalem is we investigate the crime, if you will, as we investigate what Brother Paul did, is we're going to do it like good investigators. We're going to first look at the crime scene. We'll look at the scriptures that describe at least the stoning of Stephen. 
Then after we look at that, we're going to examine the motives. We're going to ask why this man, in the name of his religion, did such a thing. And then we'll go into a little bit more detail. One of my favorite parts of this lesson is we're going to, God willing, have time to look at the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the oral part of the Hebrew law that existed at the time of Paul. And this lays out how you go about stoning someone and when you do it. And it meshes perfectly with the stoning of Stephen because the stoning of Stephen was carried out in Jerusalem under Judaic law, under this law. So we'll look and provide a little more detail than Luke gives us on exactly what happened. And then finally, we'll have our points for home. So with that as a basic outline of where we want to go today, let's start with the crime scene. The crime scene, if you've got a Bible and want to sort of skim through, this crime scene happens in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. There was a, a deacon of the church, one of the first, a man named Stephen who was picked because he was full of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen was chosen to help make sure that food was being distributed fairly between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Aramaic-speaking Jews, between those who worshipped at a Greek synagogue and those who worshipped at a Jewish temple or synagogue. Stephen is seized by the authorities because he is teaching about Jesus and serving Jesus and worshipping Jesus. And Stephen is actually put on trial before the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin, there were two Sanhedrins at the time. One would be a council, the full Sanhedrin of 71. The other would be a little Sanhedrin of 23. But the way the Sanhedrin met during a trial is in a semicircle, a half moon. And the witnesses would be in the middle. And they put the Sanhedrin in a half moon so the, the judges... The Sanhedrin were the judges, the council. So the judges could see each other's faces. There would be three rows of disciples of the Sanhedrin on the open side of the moon. And the witnesses would come in the middle. Stephen is the principal witness. Stephen is put in the middle. And Stephen provides a defense for what he believes and what he has done. Stephen's defense goes back to the beginning and charts how God has spoken through prophets, but how almost every step along the way, the people of Israel, rather than listen to the prophets and honor what the prophets are saying, the people have chosen to kill and stone the prophets. A stiff-necked people who wouldn't hear God's message something I'm sure none of us can relate to because whenever God tells us something, we immediately do it. No questions asked. So Stephen gives his defense and in the end basically says, and the ultimate message that God had for you was the message of Jesus Christ and you killed him and put him to death. And at this point, the council's reaction is one where they're... Um, the gnashing of teeth is the description used by Luke. They're very angry. They're spitting mad, we might say, in our language. 
gnashing of teeth. It does not literally mean they were sitting there going, it's an expression. Our expression would be spitting mad or, or just whatever it might be. Um, when the council has this reaction and they're all furious and they all think Stephen's in trouble, um, Stephen has a vision. Stephen's vision is of Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Stephen must have told him what he was seeing because someone knew enough to write it down. Stephen sees Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. That is, in essence, an ultimate blasphemy. Jesus is, first of all, who stands in the presence of God? The holy prophet Isaiah fell flat and said, I'm not worthy. That there would be a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God is tantamount to saying that Jesus is God. On equal footing. And we read the following. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. La, 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 la. They didn't even want to hear it. And they rushed together at him. Then they cast him, Stephen, out of the city. And they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, what happened? Well, this is the scene. We have Stephen stoned. We have him stoned proclaiming not only Jesus is Lord, but calling out and crying for Jesus' mercy upon his killers. Okay. That's the crime scene. Now let's look at the motive for a minute. And for the motive, I want to start with a passage Paul wrote in the very first letter we have that Paul wrote, the letter to the church at Galatia. And in that very first letter, Paul, in the first chapter, the 13th and the 14th verses, says the following. I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it. He says, I was advancing in zeal beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I. Look at this passage. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, motive. Why? Why did Paul do that? I think most of us are fairly religious people or we wouldn't be in church. I've met people who worship wrongly. I've met people who don't have uh, uh, what I consider to be proper objects of their faith. I've never gnashed my teeth at them or killed them. What is it that motivated Paul out of religious zeal 
to see to the death of Stephen. Paul says it's because I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Who were his fathers? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 3 that as to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Same idea. I was a Pharisee. But for my zeal, I was so zealous, I would persecute the church. Paul tells us, zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Who were his fathers? I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. Paul was a multi-generational Pharisee. I believe that means some scholars, albeit a minority, but some scholars think it's a reference to his teachers. That's fine too. Because his teachers, Gamaliel, was certainly a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees as well. Either way, it's, it's, it doesn't take away from the point. What Paul's talking about is Paul is such a zealous Pharisee, zealous after the traditions of his fathers, that he did this. Now, last week, if you were here, we talked about the history of, or we talked about Pharisees and how, what it meant for Paul to be a Pharisee, right? Y'all remember? Okay. This week, we're going to add a little bit we didn't have last week. Where did the Pharisees come from? We need a history of the Pharisees. A history of the American Orthopedic Association will not do. So we're going to make this a history of the Pharisees. And I guess we need to like change some of the faces of it. Okay, that's the book we need. A history of the Pharisees. The Pharisees rose up during what's called the intertestamental time period. Do you know what the intertestamental time period is? Most of you do. Some of you don't. Many of you don't, maybe. I don't know. We got the Old Testament and we got the New Testament. And in between them, in between Malachi and Matthew, is about 400 years. That's called the intertestamental period because it's in the middle between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's during that time period that the Pharisees arose. We have some books that were written during that time period. The Catholics put them into their scriptures. The Protestants do not. They're called the Apocrypha. In the Apocrypha, some of the books are prophetic. Some of the books are allegorical. Some of the books are stories that are told, but some of the books are history books of that time period. And in one of those history books called First Maccabees, we can read the history that surrounded the Pharisees coming into power, if you will. First Maccabees tells us of a time when Israel, and, and history bears this out, by the way. This is not simply from 1 Maccabees. Uh, this, is, this is good history as far as it goes and what we're trying to say. Um, there was a time where Israel was governed not by Rome, uh, but, but by another empire. There was a fellow who was ruling over Israel in that area named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes was trying to phase out the practices of Judaism and bring in Greek lifestyle. 
And it's fine if you want to call yourself a Jew, and it's fine if you want to do temple worship, but don't do it to the God of the Old Testament. Do it in the Greek form. And he, and, and he had a, a Greek gymnasium built for the Jewish boys to go be gymnasts, uh, do the things you would do in a gymnasium. That, by the way, was pretty anti-Jewish because most of the things done in the gymnasium, they didn't have leotards. They did them naked. Okay? And the Jewish men and boys that were doing it wanted to appear Greek-like, so they were even going to great lengths to hide their circumcision. And it was real avant-garde, and it was real modern, and it was real hip. To be, although Jewish by heritage, Greek by practice. And the Old Testament and the Torah and the law was, eh, that's for the old people. And I gotta tell you, there are young people in every generation who feel this way. And I wish all those young people could go back and look how history has carried forward the truth of the traditions of the fathers and shown to be perhaps naively foolish, the impetuousness of youth and the desire to hitch the wagon onto the latest and greatest fad. But that's another lesson to another audience. There is a group that fought against Hellenizing or Greekizing the Jewish faith. This group was headed by the Maccabee brothers, hence the name of the book, First Maccabees. And the Maccabee brothers fought for Jewish law and Jewish tradition and led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And joining the Jewish brothers in this fight were a group of very devout Jews called the Hasidians. And the Hasidians, they fought to the point of death in this revolt. Out of the Hasidians come the Pharisees. The Pharisees considered themselves the ones who fought against taking the old Jewish faith, the law and customs of Moses, and letting some newfangled fad turn it into some nouveau practice not just dubious import, but just flat wrong. By the way, it is from this Pharisee-involved revolt, which was successful, that the temple got rededicated because they purged the temple of the Greek influence and rededicated it to Yahweh. They didn't have enough oil for the lamps to burn for the eight days of rededication. But somehow, miraculously, we're told the lamps burned anyway for eight days. And what do we get from that? That's the menorah and the celebration of Hanukkah. It comes from this intertestamental time period. That's why if you want to read about Hanukkah, you'll not find it in the Old Testament. It arose during this intertestamental time period. Okay, so Paul says, I was so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. My fathers were Pharisees who fought to stop the corruption of the laws of Moses. My fathers gave their lives 
to see that the law and the customs of Moses stood as the tradition and practice of Israel and would not change by any newfangled fad. Do you see some of his motive? Okay, so with Stephen, what exactly was Stephen guilty of? What did Stephen do that Paul thought deserved death? He worshipped an idol, in essence. Deuteronomy 17 says the following. If there's found among you a man or a woman who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, you shall stone that man or woman to death. Stephen's guilty. He starts worshiping Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin at his trial. He has this vision of Jesus and commits his spirit to the Lord Jesus. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Could there be any doubt? This is not, gee, we need some more witnesses to prove it up. The guy practically confessed on the floor. He commits the crime in front of the Sanhedrin. Which drove him crazy. Now there is a possibility here that we as 21st century rational thinkers would have. The lawyer in me would want to say to Paul, time out. Before you convict Stephen, might it not be possible Jesus is the Messiah? Shouldn't we at least examine that as a possibility? If in fact Jesus is Messiah, you have no right to stone him. And if you stone him, you've committed a horrible sin. The Mishnah that we're going to look at in a minute that has your law for stonings, the Mishnah says, whoever destroys wrongfully a single Israelite soul, is deemed by Scripture as if he had destroyed a whole world. So Paul, before you destroy a single Israelite soul, might you not consider what if Jesus is Messiah? Paul's response to that is, it's impossible. There's no way Jesus could be Messiah. We know by, by, by fact and logic. Why? Jesus was crucified, right? So, here's Paul's logic. Jesus was crucified. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So, Jesus was cursed because he was hung on a tree. And the Messiah is blessed by definition, not cursed. Jesus could never be Messiah because Jesus was cursed. And the Messiah will be blessed by God, not cursed. And every man who hangs on a tree is cursed. Paul, it took the Holy Spirit working in him to realize that Jesus' curse that he had on the cross was not Jesus' curse. Jesus was cursed with our curse. But for Paul, that was a very difficult issue. This is why Paul would write to the Corinthian church, we preach Christ crucified, and that is a stumbling block to Jews. Jews had trouble conceiving a Messiah who has hung on a tree. So, 
So, with motive and a crime, Paul sees himself and the rest of the Sanhedrin as the appropriate punishers. And that takes us back to the crime scene. And the Mishnah, the portion that deals with the Sanhedrin, chapter 6. How are we doing time-wise? We're doing okay. Let's look at, if I can get it up here, what it says. Um, is that big enough for you all to be able to read? Yes, no? Darn. Okay. I'm going to read it to you. Here, I've got a picture of it. Bam. There. When the trial is over, and the felon, Stephen was a felon, is convicted, take him out to stone him. The place of stoning is well outside the court. As it said in Leviticus 24:14, bring forth him who cursed to a place outside the camp. Now, if you're reading along in Acts, the story is delivered in Acts. That's exactly what they do. They don't pick up rocks and stone him there. They lead him out. Because Acts is an accurate portrayal of what happened. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth. He sees Jesus. He says, behold, I see the heavens open. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cry out with a loud voice. They stop their ears. They rush together at him. Then... They cast him out of the city and stoned him. That's the first thing you do. Once he's convicted, you take him out of the city. The place of stoning is well outside the court. Now, here's some interesting stuff Luke doesn't tell us. Luke's purpose is not to give us a dissertation in Jewish law. But the law requires that if the convicted party, if Stephen had said, I have something to say in favor of my own acquittal, They were required to bring him back and stop the stoning. Stephen could have said, okay, I take it back. King's axe. I shouldn't have been eating that cactus or mushrooms or whatever it was. I had a vision, sorry. Hallucination. No, Stephen doesn't do that. Stephen continues to dwell within the vision of God Almighty and Jesus at his right hand. Now, They bring him out when he's ten cubits from the place of stoning. Ten cubits is about 15 feet. It's about as far as me to that music stand. When he's uh, 15 feet from the place of stoning, they say to the man, they said to Stephen, confess. Because it's usual for those who are about to be put to death to confess. And if they confess, they have a share in the world to come. And if they don't know how to confess, you say to them, just say as follows, quote, let my death be atonement for all of my transgressions. In other words, here's your chance. You're about to die. Why don't you at least say, God, I'm sorry. I was wrong. And let that be an atonement for your sins. So maybe you have a share of eternal life. Stephen did not do that. Stephen's would never have counted his own death for his atonement. Stephen, instead, his response is, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus is his atonement. Nobody else. Certainly not himself. Now, when there are four cubits from the place of stoning, six feet, that's when you take the guy's clothes off. It says when he's four feet four cubits from the place of stoning, they remove his clothes. In the case of a man, they cover him up in front. In the case of a woman, they cover her up in front and behind. A man is stoned naked. A woman is not stoned naked. The place of stoning was twice the height of a man. Stoning was not merely picking up rocks and chunking them. They brought the person to the edge of a drop-off, a cliff. Twice the height. A little over roof height. See, uh, Eve height, generally. And then what they do is one of the witnesses pushes him over from the hips so hard that he turns upward and he falls. If he dies, when he falls, that suffices. Did Stephen die from the fall? No. Stephen, falling to his knees, cries out. See, we think falling to his knees, when we read it as English students, we just think that means he's about to be stoned, so he kind of falls down to his knees. No, he fell to his knees, but that didn't kill him. He cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. If the fall does not kill him, the second witness, the first witness is the one who pushed him, takes a stone and chunks it on his heart. And if that kills him, that's sufficient. And if not, then all of the Israelites have a responsibility of picking up stones and throwing them at him until he dies. Now, Paul never forgot that. Paul told the Corinthian church, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And that's strong. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called. But the biggest punch for me in that verse is in the verse right before. Last of all, Christ, as to one untimely born, Christ appeared also to me. Last of all, as to one untimely born. The Greek word for untimely born is ektromo. It means an aborted child. It means a child that's dead in the womb before delivery. Paul's saying, I was dead. Spiritually dead. Not sick, not ill, not ailing. Dead. I was a rejected child dead with no hope of life when Jesus Christ appeared to me and called me to be one of His. I'm the least of the... The other apostles, they were called while they were alive and they had training at the feet of Jesus and He prepared them for ministry. I didn't have that. I, I, I was I was ectroma because I persecuted the church of God. 
Now, next week we get to read about his conversion. It's 74 to 82 in the books, which you're welcome to grab if you don't have. But let's talk about it for just a moment in our points for home. Your worst moment? Paul could have answered that question in the flash of an eye. Now, maybe you're saying, yeah, but my worst moment's worse than Paul's because I did my worst when I was a Christian. He at least was a pagan. No, he wasn't a pagan. He believed in God Almighty. He just didn't understand Jesus had died for his sins. I would tell you what Paul told Timothy at the end of Paul's life as he's writing. Paul said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. My friends, full acceptance. Don't accept this partially. Don't accept this merely for others. This is something worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's a full acceptance. Don't ever leave this place and not understand that Jesus Christ died to save you. There's nothing you've done as a Christian, as a pagan, as anything that is beyond the reach of God's power and, and the death of Christ to forgive and to save. There's just not. If you think there is, then please, please don't hesitate to come up and visit with any of us up the front of here afterwards. Second, watch sin in the midst of religious zeal. I've been guilty of this. I've been guilty of using my Bible to beat people over the head and give them a concussion and kill them. And if I can learn anything from the Sermon on the Mount, I need to learn that uh, there is a, a, a loving spirit about a Christian, a sacrificing, giving spirit, a spirit of gentleness, Paul calls it in Philippians. Just a warning. We'll deal with this in a lot more depth as we go through Paul's stuff. And finally, consider Paul, but also consider Stephen. Because while Paul's overseeing this horrible thing, it's happening to Stephen. Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Boy, God answered that prayer, didn't he? We see that in a couple of chapters when God calls Paul to be his apostle. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this class and the chance to study Paul. Thank you for the example of Paul. Thank you for the wonderful treasures you've given us to help us understand. And Lord, so much of this class is tragic to me. And I know that your heart is still touched over the martyrdom of Stephen. But Lord, I treasure how you work in the midst of pain and misery and anguish and death and, and destruction. And how all of the works of Satan are thwarted by you in the end as you establish your kingdom and you bring all of us home for eternity with you. In that we, we treasure and we trust and we wait through Jesus our Lord. Amen.